Welcome back to another episode of Are You a Robot? Today is our recap season eight with Ryan, the main organizer and founder of For Humanity. If you are just tuning into this episode, there's a whole slew of other episodes in this season that For Humanity was so kindly sponsoring. So we have lots of different fellows and people that are engaged in For Humanity in a different way coming on here and talking to us. And in this episode, Ryan and I get into the different people that we've had on over the past couple weeks. Ryan talks about why he thought these people would be great to chat with and also how their minds work, how they tie into the For Humanity structure and what they're doing in For Humanity. And then we chat a little bit about what exactly For Humanity has been up to and if there's any updates since the last time that I spoke with Ryan, which was a few months ago. So for those who are a little in the dark about For Humanity, it is a nonprofit that seeks to create trust between organizations and the public by AI audits. Ryan and I get into what exactly their stance and their role is when it comes to the auditing of AI systems in this episode and much, much more. Let's hear what Ryan has to say. Are you a robot? Ryan, welcome back, man. It's been a little while and we've got a lot to talk about. I'm excited to we chat do. with you. This is the recap episode of the whole season we've been doing with For Humanity. First of all, thank you so much for sponsoring this season and giving us the vote of confidence. It's great to have that. And now let's jump into this season. I mean, maybe we should just start by getting your overall impression. I want to know how was it for you and what did you think? I loved it. I loved listening. You know, I, I interact with these, you know, these these team members, these these contributors, these fellows all the time. And it was nice to get to hear them, you know, sort of come at all these issues from from their perspective, not from a for humanity perspective, not from a, a criteria based perspective, but really to, to, to know what kind of makes them tick and what they think about. And um, it also reminded me of the of the wealth of talent that is at for humanity. And it's an embarrassment of riches. We are so lucky and so fortunate to have these bright people around us. And uh, yeah, I, I feel very blessed. And, and, and I hope the work that we are doing can bless others. In other words, make, make for a better result for everybody. Excellent. Yeah, there is a pretty deep bench at For Humanity because the people that we talked to or that I talked to over the last couple weeks, couple months, actually, they continuously amazed me. And so I'm wondering if there's any piece that jumped out at you or something that really is top of your mind that you want to go into. <clears throat> you know, I thought a lot about um, really each each one of the elements, um, you know, whether it was Adam uh, Leon Smith talking about how conformity assessments are going to be built in Europe, how this law might come to fruition. It's such cutting edge. It's so different. It's so new. Um, and, and all of that ranged all the way to, you know, listening to Mark reference the 1778 All Writs Act and how it's relevant today still in terms of, you know, sort of compelled government responsibility or, or sorry, compelled uh, responsibility of the public to government acts and, and how all of this can be tied together in, in the humanity that uh, exists in these systems. And, and I'll, I'll reference really a terminology I am totally borrowing from Navrina Singh, which is that all of these systems are socio-technological systems. They are not a calculator. They are not, I put the numbers in and the numbers come back out the right way. 
they're built on these foundations of ethics and foundations of moral frameworks. And they're making decisions for us and they're impacting all elements are in our, of our lives and often in ways that we can't even anticipate. And That's so thinking point. about that responsibility is what is, it weighs on me. And it's exciting that we have the, you know, this, this horsepower, these, these teammates who are willing to lend their time and volunteer to try to solve and manage these problems and bring accountability, governance, trust and oversight to the systems. You just said it weighs on you. What do you mean by that? The responsibility here is, is pretty awesome. Um, in the sense that we are trying on behalf of humanity to create accountability really in organizations that have defied or even fought against accountability for decades now. You know, move fast and break things is very much a Silicon Valley mantra. It's very much a technology mantra. And the problem is, is the things that they're breaking are people. And, and that's not okay. That's where it has to stop. And the weight of that problem, I mean, regulators and governments are tackling it. But in a lot of cases, even just putting in law doesn't necessarily mean compliance with the law. And without compliance, without abiding by these principles and these concepts, we may not have governance and oversight. We may just have chit chat. We may just have laws written on a piece of paper that mean nothing. And so the, the part that weighs on me is how can we operationalize this work, these laws, these regulations, these guidelines in a way that allows for genuine compliance for those that want to, and a way where those who want to avoid compliance have to. Uh, I see. So should we jump into some different episodes and go a little deep? I would love to start with the Sarah Clark episode because I have fond memories of recording that one. I was in Greece when it happened. And I also remember just laughing so hard at the revenge she took. I don't know if you remember that story yeah. of how she had a mix up in her name and she went and found like she, she went the extra mile, we could say to yes. make sure that the person that was doing these things stopped doing these things. Was there anything else in that episode that stood out to you or that was interesting and you want to comment on? Well, I think Sarah's proactivity highlights really the one of the primary character traits of, of all of the people who are coming and joining for humanity. And she's top of the list. I mean, you know, let, let's be honest here. Her willingness to to create and try to solve these kind of problems um, is exemplary. And it's so exemplary, actually, since she has done that, I, I feel very com comfortable sharing this with you, kind of announcing this here, which is she's been named a board member at For Humanity. Now, the nature of the board at For Humanity, I, I started the organization. It was my company, my entity. It's a nonprofit, it's a charity, but it was still mine. And we started to build and grow this community. And as the community became a genuine community, not a collection of people, a genuine community, it was so obvious to me that the community needed to run our mission. And so I abdicated is the right word, might be a heavy word, but I, I basically kind of, I didn't step aside. I'm the executive director. I'm still on the board. But what I said was, it is not my right or my responsibility to dictate how this community goes, grows, and moves. And so last October, we agreed that the Four Humanity Fellows, now to be a fellow at Four Humanity means you have to have demonstrated extraordinary commitment to the mission. And that can mean a million things. And we, we do that on purpose because there's a lot of ways to be extraordinary. But we basically said the four humanity fellows will always elect a majority of the board of directors. And so we did that. We, we ended up having a vacancy. Um, one of our, our directors had to leave for, for a series of, 
of reasons, some of which were personal. And so we needed to replace, um, replace that person. And so we had three women who stood for election, all fantastic and qualified. And Sarah was the one who amongst her peers stood out as the right person to, to be on the board of directors. And I think that tells you who she is. It tells you who she's been in the community. Oh yeah. Um, and, and you get an example of, of, of kind of what it takes to stand out inside for humanity as well. Seeing Sarah in action, seeing her passions, seeing her dreams, seeing her concerns, seeing her fears and risks, you know, the, and the risks that she's concerned about. All of those things make Sarah fantastic. Yeah. She seems to attack problems through a different lens, just probably for a whole plethora of reasons, but her background was fascinating to me and the way that she looks at things coming from this idea of privacy. And I'm wondering if for you, there was something that when Sarah talked, or even I think about Mark's conversation too, when, if we're talking about privacy, if there's anything that is top of mind when it comes to that. Sarah's perspective on risk is, um, is her primary point of leadership inside of For Humanity, but also inside of For Humanity's thought process. So we are in the process of developing what we call a comprehensive AI risk evaluation report. The sum of that report is an algorithmic risk assessment, which involves diverse inputs and multi-stakeholder feedback, trying to identify risk. And, and, and let me give you a, a hardcore example of what that means. And it's an awful example, but it's poignant. How many people at TSA in America, how many people at TSA needed to be in the room thinking about risk before one of them put their hands up and said, you know, we could have terrorists who are trained to fly planes, come in, get on our planes and fly them into buildings. The answer is, is more than we're thinking about it, right? And thus it highlights the importance of diverse input and multi-stakeholder feedback. Now you'll never get it perfect, but we wanna get it better and better and better in terms of identifying risk. And Sarah brings that lens of risk assessment, not only at the corporate level, where she's had a lot of experience in governance and controls, um, and, uh, privacy and, and cybersecurity, right? But just even thinking about how to quantify, how to track, how to enable people to speak about risk. Speaking about risk and having it be understood is a very difficult thing to do. But the more we can do of that, the more Sarah's that we can get in place to talk about how to, to, to measure and think about risk in all of these different perspectives, that's when we start to really anticipate problems and solve them in advance. Yeah. This is su such great points. So along those lines, I mean, risk is huge with for humanity and also i mean in the machine learning and ai industry right now it's so needed right and i'm i'm thinking about some of the risks that you have to deal with and that you're thinking through on a daily basis what are these ones i mean you gave the example right now of the tsa and the airplane risks and I'm sure there are a ton of risks that you all are going through. And like you said, like how many more people do we need to get in the room so we can try and cover as big of a use case or as many use cases as possible? What are some of these risks that you're looking at? The, the biggest one to me is, is simple to talk about. It's even simple to implement and change. And it's just against the culture of which most of these companies operate. And that is this. 
<clears throat> because these are socio-technological tools. What we have is, is we have this process. We see a problem, we hand it to engineers, and we go solve. And you know what engineers are great at? Solving those problems. I mean, gifted minds, creative problem solving. Here's the problem. When you're dealing with socio-technological solutions, the problem solving that goes on involves a whole series of instances of ethical choice along the way. And you know what engineers are not trained on? Awareness of ethical choice and how to deal with them. And so what we are faced with is trying, you, 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 so now that you realize that, right, now that that is a fact, now you have to look around the organization and say, who is qualified to handle this? And the problem is most times ethics or, or, or being ethical means legal compliance, and that is insufficient. It is insufficient in a world that's moving to a lot more soft law. Take the children's code in the UK. The children's code in the UK calls for balancing the well-being of the child against the profitability of the entity. Wow, is that a difficult challenge to face? And oh, by the way, if you just ask the accountants, they're going to focus on profits. If you just ask the CEO who has to report earnings, earnings, they're going to just focus on profits. And that is not what the law says. So now you have to look around and what we see and what we say is we need an empowered, standing, integrated and listened to ethics committee who are trained in all of these instances of ethical choice, whether it's algorithm ethics or whether it's simply translating and discussing these soft law requirements who are the most objective in the organization. They can't be incentivized by profits. If they are, boom, right? It overweighs the equation. So now you have to find a way to create these, these ethics committees and listen to them and hear them when they say, you can't do that, even if you think it's going to make you a lot of money. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is against culture. Even though in 2019, the Business Roundtable came out and said, we can't just be about shareholder value. The whole group, this was their release. Mm -hmm. They said, we can't be just about shareholder value. But they don't live it. Right. They can talk it. They don't actually implement it. And this is an example of how they can. Since you and I met, we, we produced a piece called The Rise of the Ethics Committee that's mm -hmm. focused on why this is important and how to do it. Yeah. Talk is cheap. <laughs> yes. It's so true. And it's very interesting that you make this point, I think, about how it goes against the grain of the culture. It's something that's come up quite a bit on the podcast on how we have the two kind of diametrically opposed viewpoints or, I guess, incentives that are really pulling against each other and they're trying to go in different directions. So with that being said and learning about your ideas or, or what keeps you up at night, I guess, is how we could put it. And knowing that humans are very complicated beings. Where do you stand? Do you feel like we've got a future in this? Is it bleak or are you optimistic? <laughs> I'm, I'm equal parts. Um, my, my nature, the nature of the organization you know, we, we've dedicated ourselves to examining the downside risks, right? So explicitly, you walk in the door as a pessimist, right? When you when you hear that, but I'm, a, I'm an optimist. I'm an eternal optimist. Sometimes my wife would even tell you I'm too optimistic, right? And so um, the reason that this can be done is because I'm optimistic about being able to solve these pessimistic views. So I do believe in humans. I do believe we can move and, and, and do the right sorts of things, but I think it's easier to do the bad things. It's easier to do the naughty things. It's easy for, I was, as you were talking, I was thinking about news. Think about the news we hear. Just you know, kind of start here like this and go, okay, during the half hour of news, is it good news or is it bad news? Or is it bad news? Or is it bad news, right? The only things that we get reported to are bad news. They're, they're, they're picking on people. They're, they're pointing out their flaws. 
They're, they're, they're calling presidents and prime ministers disasters, you know, um, and, and they're creating divisiveness, right? All of those things are on the pessimistic side. I don't think humanity loves that. I got to be honest with you. And I think it's hurting us when we behave in this kind of a, a way and we let our information sources, we don't take power of our information sources. We have to change that. And that's true across all of the ways that we interact. Again, I'm going to use the word with these socio-technological systems. We have to recognize that they have an impact in our well-being, our our joy, our peace, our knowledge, our information, our misinformation, our disinformation, right? Yeah. I want to change gears a little bit and talk about the episode with Enrico and what you thought about that. I will preface this with, I was getting into pizza making a lot. I, did I mention it on this? I don't know if I mentioned you it did. before. Well, you, there, there was a lot of talk about cooking and and <laughs> and, and how how cooking and and ingredient adding and and the yeah. chemistry of it is is relevant to the the positive experience. Yeah, I have to say this about Enrico. Enrico is a godsend to for humanity, and that would not have come across. Enrico is the back end of all of the work that we've done, the behind the scenes, the ontology, the clarity with which our database is constructed. He took a website. Now I'm not a great web designer. I would never profess to be. It's not my skill. We had a functional website. Without asking Enrico, he took the entire website, replicated it behind the scenes, changed it, made it 10 times better. And then was like, Ryan, do you wanna see a, you know, a version of your website? <laughs> and I was like, sure. And he just blew me away. And he's done that with our database. But he's also done that with thinking about data ethics. So he, uh, I think in between when you've recorded also and now, he's released a paper or is about to release a paper. I'm not sure the exact status. I, I did a lot of editorial work on it. But he's highlighted that there's a latent uh, uh, layer of data ethics that is going unserviced and unconsidered. And he's absolutely mm -hmm. right about that the way in which we treat, manage, and apply a moral framework to the data that comes in, if we can do this in a robust, transparent, morally, um, I, I don't wanna say right, it's, it's not what I mean, in a morally sound way where we are espousing what is the, the moral framework upon which we're building. There's nothing about for humanity in our process that says you must do this with a few exceptions. Right? We abide by independent audit. We abide by clarity and transparency and access and the whole system of independent audit. But we're not ever in there trying to tell you, you know, you have to be right or wrong or this is right or wrong. Right. We want companies, we want entities, we want jurisdictions, countries to abide by their own moral framework. Just tell us what it is. Just tell us what that process looks like. And, and what Enrico is, is doing with data ethics is, is applying that same sort of moral framework, calling out and requiring that care and that love and that same attention that he puts into cooking that you two were totally vibing off of, right? To do it with how data is managed. And this is, this is his mm -hmm. philosophy. It comes from, from studying under Floridi, um, who is you know, a brilliant, absolute leader in uh, in the information society that we live in. And Enrico learned and, and, and just he, he, he's, he's drunk on floridity, floridity in the sense that he's got so much of it in him that it just, it, it can't help but to come out. And it's so valuable and it's so constructive and it creates such understanding. Uh, we, couldn't, we couldn't do what we do without Enrico. The philosopher inside of him is so apparent or the yeah. it's it's his blood right it's so part of him that no matter what he's going to manifest that in all of he, what he touches and i loved that because it's rare that like you were saying earlier you see engineers who have that side and that's like the Venn diagram of ethics and engineering. If you can hit that sweet spot, 
then you're one in a couple billion. And so it's nice to be able to talk to someone like Enrico and have that perspective tethered with the deep technical knowledge. Exactly. It, it, it is that intersection of the Venn diagram that makes Enrico special. And I just want to add one other point to that. English is not his native tongue. And so it's so, so yeah. valuable to who we are in terms of accessibility. Enrico is responsible for, for humanity Italy and for humanity France. Just communicating the words that we use. And translation is no soft thing, right? Translation is, is when you do it right, it is really technical and there's a precision and care. It's really a care mm -hmm. that has to exist in translation. And Enrico is the exact kind of person you want doing it, but he cares about words, not only what they mean, but how they're heard. And that's everything. So there's a little bit of a pointed question that I want to hit you with because you were talking about robustness and having robust data or robust strategy. And it is a word that's been coming up more and more when I talk to people and also in different regulation. And I've heard a lot of pushback from this word because it's very difficult to say what exactly robust data is, robust procedures or robust ethics programs. It's so vague, right? Yeah. And it's so subjective that it's very hard to be able, and especially for those who are engineers, that it's more binary to be able to say, is this robust? Well, <laughs> kind of. It's uh, yeah. And is it or not? Well, I mean, I don't know. I can't clearly say. And also, it's hard to talk about robust data and really know that you have all of the data that you could want, right? Or all of the data that is possible so that you're not going to have any bias or any of that. I'm wondering how you look at these kind of incongruencies when it comes to that. Like, yeah, we do want robustness. That's something that everyone will argue for and say that they want. But then when you have to actually put it into practice and the rubber hits the pavement, what does that mean and how can you set up these processes around making sure things are robust? You, you got to stay out of my Slack and my other Zoom conversations because you're listening to them. It's very clear. Um, our primary work right now, primary work, most important advancement that we, we can make with our audit criteria and with our body of knowledge. The body of knowledge is, is let, me, let me just give a little bit of background on this. So we will have audit criteria that says you must have code of ethics. Very simple. You either have it or you don't. Compliant, non-compliant, it's easy. Right. But then now I'm the auditor and I'm staring at your code of ethics and I'm like, is this good enough? Does this work? Like, you know, uh, you know, how do I know? So that's where we've created the body of knowledge. The body of knowledge highlights what is sufficient about a code of ethics, what is mature about a code of ethics and what are some common insufficiencies or mistakes or things that are left out. OK. And so now as an auditor, I can go to that body of knowledge, to that knowledge store, and I can see, oh, they, they, they check all the boxes. Fantastic. Good to go. Oh, this is even mature. Let me pass that back to them. Let them know where, it, oh, you're missing this element or that. You know, you can, you can provide that back. So, so you have a way to have these conversations. Now, expand that to these five things. I, you started with robustness, but I'm going to put five things in the category. Validity, accuracy reliability, robustness, and resilience. Those five things are primary work right now, is how can we achieve audit compliance with these systems? And let me give you an example. I, I've recently had a whole bunch of people say to me, Ryan, how can you audit these complex systems? And I almost want to explode. I'm like, since when is complex a good reason to put a system in place? I have two questions for you. Show me that it works and show me what the risks are that are associated with it. And if you can't do those things, get your system out of here. It's done, right? 
So now in that context, we have to in, enable and empower people to say, my system's good enough, right? That it's, that it, and I've identified what those risks are. And that means validity, accuracy, reliability, robustness, and resilience. And so we have to create a way for people to prove what this means. And it's context sensitive every time. Therefore, you used a word called no. And I reject your word, no. You can't know. You can't know that a system is qualified to be put out there. You can't know that it's sufficiently free of bias. Therefore, I'm going to inject a word into to what you said, which is risk-based. What you really need to know, to, to, huh, let me avoid the word no, what you really want to be able to do is to be able to say, I, I have good confidence in this system. Here's why. Let me show you why I have good confidence in the system. Now, I know it's going to struggle here, and it may struggle here. We've created systems to, to basically deal with those struggles, right? Whether it's a reliability issue uh, let me take facial recognition. Facial recognition was sold to everybody. It's 95% accurate. Well, the vast majority of the people that were in there look like you and me, you know, whitish dudes, right? Or, or maybe women. And when you look at a protected category level, it wasn't 95% accurate. It was maybe 40% accurate for black females. If you walked into any office, any, any algorithm risk committee, and said, here, use this facial recognition system. It's 95% accurate, but oh, by the way, 40% accurate for black women. Do you know what happens? They kick you out of the room and say, go back and do your work again, right? So this is the context-specific risk-based nature of how we have to handle validity, accuracy, reliability, et cetera. Let's switch it up again real fast because... I want to hear what your thoughts were on the conversation that I had with Mark. And just so you know, I've been actually keeping in touch with Mark. It's really a blessing to be able to have met him. So thank you for making that intro. And now we we chat every once in a while. Actually, I, I spoke with him last week um, just to to chat and shoot the shit, as we yeah. say, because... He was one of those people that when I spoke to him, it was obvious to me, again, that he's thinking on a different level. And he has so much knowledge and experience that it is so beneficial for me just to chat with him and have these informal chats. And he's been great about keeping up and catching up with me. So thank you for that. What did you think of the chat? that we had. I have the privilege of, of dealing with Mark uh, very regularly. He's pro bono general counsel for, uh, for humanity. And I, I would hope that he would agree with this term. He's my friend. Um, and so uh, we, we, we do talk very regularly. He provides a lot of advice. We are also um, very effective writing team um, because of our two different ways of thinking. So I'll throw out ideas and he'll be basically be like, I, I, I kind of figured what you're saying, but like, there's a lot better way to say it. And that's how Mark operates, yeah. right? So articulate. Is, is, yeah. And, and, and his ability to interpret the law and understand, you know, everything that we're doing has to fit under the law in most cases. I mean, sometimes it's guidelines, sometimes it's best practices, but most time it's regulatory interpretation and law. And so having that perspective, and Trish Shaw is like this as well, who's another For Humanity fellow. I, I don't know if she's been on your show, but if she hasn't, we should fix that. Uh, Patricia Shaw, she's based out of, out of London. Um, she's also with a legal background and very active in a lot of this, you know, sort of AI ethics work. And so uh, having the two of them be able to go through our criteria is monstrous, right? Their value, their perspective, is is really critical mark has a whole different thing and you've got to see it in your session where mark is willing to wander with me into new areas new places of risk new ways of solving problems new ways of of trying to take what is not designed to be auditable these 
these rules, these criteria, these, you know, they're not written to be honored and how we can take and craft them into you're compliant or you're not. And I know it, and I'm willing to put my risk on the line as the auditor to say that you did. And so having his thought process, uh, it's indispensable. I, 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 there's, I'm sure there's a bigger word, but it's <laughs> indispensable. And, and you got to love it because it's stimulating back to you. Right. And yeah. I, I think that's why you're attracted to him as well to, to keep talking because it creates a valuable dialogue that's a virtuous loop of how can we think better and how can we come up with more solutions? Exactly. When I'm on the phone with him, it's hard to get off the phone with him. <laughs> <laughs> that also might be because Mark tells stories. So. Yeah. <laughs> Good stories at that. Yeah. yeah. And I remember <laughs> uh, it's it was a brilliant conversation. That's for sure. The, the next one that I want to jump into is one that I actually just recorded fairly recently uh, because of some scheduling snafus that we had. But Stephen Lee was one of the last people that I had on here, and he was the last guest of the season. And so it's fairly fresh in my mind, and I, I really had never thought about how important it is to... Th- think through how information gets out to people and how we make sure that that information gets out to, especially important information, gets out to everyone in an equal way. And and this kind of harkens back to the, the point I was making about information. And it's conversations that Stephen and I have had on how information is, is even disseminated. And the problem is, is the the amount of ingrained bias is enormous now, yeah. and it's not appreciated. It's not appreciated at all. Everyone who's seeing the news or information through the lens that makes them comfortable is receiving massively biased information. They don't even realize it. And it's word choices like, um, oh, let me see if I can come up with an example, like, a a bill was sponsored on the floor. Very neutral words, right? Very just information. This happened, right? Or if you, if you, as soon as you put in democratic or Republican, right? Or conservative or labor, right? Attached to that, you've already started to twist things and you probably didn't need to, but you probably wanted to. And that's where I have a real big problem. I think what happened with information is that journalism got broke by profitability and power. Staying in place, having my audience, making sure I, you know, there's this idea of I'm serving my audience. No, no, right? Journalism, the dissemination of information should be how can I get you the information in as bland and as neutral a way so that you can make informed decisions about it? That's out the window. Yeah. And we need to find ways to make that interesting and valuable to people again. Because here's the thing. We have these huge divides. And media loves these divides now. But the problem is, is actually, in most of these instances, we can agree on 60, 70, 80% of the the topic. Mm -hmm. But that's not interesting. That doesn't make for good programming. Doesn't get people to show up for the news, I guess. But we're so far away from it. I wonder if someone who came out and basically said, I'm going to give you as bland a news as I possibly can in as basic a way, avoid purposefully all sorts of terminology so that it doesn't come loaded to you. I got. I, I have to believe that that would be embraced warmly. Well, that wouldn't get the clicks, right? And this is how these days it feels like journalists are being monetized or how they're salaries are being paid is by how many clicks they're getting. And so they have to go out and look for the sensational news story or use the sensational headlines. And so if they're not doing that and they're coming out with this bland stuff, I think it, I personally feel like it would just fly under the radar and you wouldn't get the either side to look at it because 
it's too bland and it's too Maybe. vanilla. Or what about, and there's another element of this, um, again, Stephen and I have talked about, about this as well, which is, you know, what about, it doesn't have to be bland in the sense of it's just neutral and it's just basic information, but what about actually allowing two sides to fully express themselves, not in whatever controlled environment you want, but let them actually express themselves. And here's a human element. So now you got two sides. Ask this person what they like about this. Ask them to support the other person's position because you know what that does? That achieves consensus and compromise. That helps people to talk a similar language and feel supported as humans. Now, I've been trying to stay away from this from a for humanity perspective, but you highlighted already that our culture, our society, our profitability is not set up to solve this problem. And what that means is that somebody, doesn't have to be for humanity, but somebody might have to come, come into the breach and basically say, it's not about profitability, it's about information. And you need to have good information, even if it's not your only source, even if it's not your primary source, if it's at your disposal, maybe that's sufficient. Maybe it's a public good. Oh, I hadn't thought about it that way. I mean, I think one of the most important pieces of society right now in 2021 is information and not only how it gets to us but the type of information that we're getting and going out and actively finding or passively by just turning on the tv and then the not only information but misinformation or disinformation right and that feels like such a large problem to me and it feels like something that is miles away from being solved. And you see some people that say, oh, we'll, we'll use AI to fix it. And you'll see others that place the blame on big tech companies or say that the government needs to regulate things more. I haven't heard as of yet a really good solution for tackling this problem. And I wonder even what that solution would look like. Well, it starts with people, unfortunately. And and what has happened and what has developed over, over these, I reckon it's about 44 decades, is that, and, and we see it in things like the social dilemma and coded bias, we are all filled with bias. We are more comfortable with things that support us than challenge us. And the net result is, is a lot of these institutions, whether it's evening news or Facebook, they have figured out what fires us up. They have figured out what motivates us to type a response. And you know what? It's rarely good on you. You did a great job. Let's celebrate what you did. It's more, I disagree with you and let me tell you why you're wrong. And the nature of that is playing on our fragility as humans. And so unless we build it up, unless we learn to do this again, to, to, and what I mean by this is taking information, require information to assume that if you've given me information, you're coming at it with a perspective. And I want to make sure I, I, I might totally trust you. Okay. But I want to make sure that I've got all sides before I reach a conclusion on this new subject in which you've enlightened me. Fantastic. Thank you for doing so. Let me see what a few other people think about it. We used to do this more because we used to dialogue more with people. Yeah. And now we don't dialogue. The dialogue has ended. That is so true. And that is in part because we're stuck at home or we are we have been stuck at home for the last year and a half. And then in, in part because it's slowly been fading away when it comes to text and, and social media. So let's jump to another episode now and talk about Miles and how, what you thought about that. I mainly remember with Miles, his big old shotgun he had on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> but what were your thoughts there on, on that episode? 
Miles is, is part of um, a super interesting backstory to For Humanity. Um, and, and Miles has been a great advisor and great supporter of everything that we've done. And, and it's sort of another example of not being able to be where we are today without, without Miles' support. The original premise of For Humanity was to um, bring together the big four and to let, and, and on behalf of the big four, figure out what the audit rules ought to look like for these systems. Kind of like what was done in 1973 when the accounting industry came together and figured out their set of rules. I was talking to EY, I had some conversations with Deloitte, but at PwC, I was boom, 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 up the ladder, meeting with literally every senior person practically in the world. And Miles was, was kind of a last stop. And actually, Miles said, we're doing this. We were so doing this, I sent wire instructions. But you know what happened? Miles quit. <laughs> the and right it one. killed me. It set for humanity back probably two years in terms of process. And I don't say that critically. This is, to be honest, being just inside the big four, probably not the best expression of how to build for humanity with this grassroots people-centric focus that we have now. We are probably better for it. But it doesn't change this lived experience with, with Miles. He moved on to MBO Partners pretty quickly. I think it was about six, within six, seven months of, of sort of, uh, of leaving. And we've stayed very close since then. And his perspective on how to empower companies and people to come together to provide these, these freelance solutions at senior executive levels is so important and valuable to bringing change, bringing a risk-based culture, and even in the work that we're doing to help C-suites and boards of directors to understand the risk that they are bearing with all of these systems and how mm. to manage it. And so when he talks about the, the, the difficulties of matching algorithms, He's absolutely right. When he talks about hiring and the bias that's embedded in the system, look, hiring before we had systems was massively biased. IQ tests, biased, okay? So now we've moved and we've systematized the system of hiring, but we brought our biases with them. So recently we had, a, had a, our conference, our AtGo conference, Accountability Trust Powered by Governance and Oversight, AtGo. And we had, we had the privilege of having Commissioner Keith Sonderling from the EEOC in the conference. And it, well, Keith said something super interesting. He said, I have all the laws I need in place to govern hiring algorithms and systems. And that would surprise a lot of people to hear that. And what he's really saying is, is that the root problems haven't changed. It's still bias. It's still discrimination. It's still not equal opportunity, which is the commission he sits on. Huh. And so making sure that that exists inside of these socio-technological systems, he has the law on his side. Now he just has to be empowered to do that. And we hope to help him with that. I hadn't thought about it that way. I did think about this idea of we brought our biases with us and we have only amplified them when we bring AI into the hiring process. It's like we've augmented our hiring abilities, but we've augmented our biases also. And, and there's one other element to it, which makes me really deeply uncomfortable, is we are trying to have a power, a foresight about people that is far from factual. So there are systems out there that are trying to determine truthfulness to your responses, trying to determine what your emotional state is when you respond and trying to put these inferences. Now, GDPR, the law, says that inferences are not fact. You may have reached a conclusion about me. It is not a fact, but they are treated with heavy value as evidence. And unfortunately, this could be the difference between person A and person B getting a job. And that's not okay. I'm not even sure it's human, to be honest. Now, there is a human element to it where I might have sat in the room with those two people and said, gosh, I trust this person more. Right? So it, it really it, talking about that amplification of bias, 
it's doing that same sort of thing. And I don't know, you know, there are, there are systems, there are people who come to For Humanity who we get the privilege to talk to are talking about trying to anonymize hiring. And that sounds fantastic to me, right? The ability to basically look for somebody at a, a functional level to see if they fit in. But then you have the human aspect of chemistry and, you know, are they, can they be part of a team and how does that all fit? Uh, Yeah. It's tough. I'll tell you, Demetrius, it's tough. Yeah. So we're running a little low on time and I want to blow through the rest of these. Maybe we should talk about Navrina and, and then cap it there. And the main question I think I have around the Navrina episode is about this idea of if a tool is the solution to the problem that she is trying to solve. Is technology the solution there or is it not something else? And adding another layer and adding another tool on top of what is already a difficult process or or sometimes it doesn't exist at all in the organization. I'm not sure that people are going to jump on board with that. And so and I know for those who didn't I hear this I, episode, yeah. sorry, maybe we should yeah. we should give a little bit of background on what she's doing and her tool yeah. and what it is. Yeah, I, I will do that and I can, I can do that, which is she's building compliance in a box, a complete and comprehensive solution to compliance with four humanity criteria or other criteria that might be out there. And so um, the, I'm gonna, I, I may have told this story before on your podcast and I apologize if it did, but I hope it rings true with why she will succeed and why it's so valuable. In 1973, when accountants started, uh, sorry, in 75, when the SEC mandated that accounting had to happen, that audits had to happen according to GAAP, now what happened is these accountants would walk in and for 20 years, everyone's reaction was the exact same. It was like, oh, it's the auditors. They're coming, right? Like it's going to be a bad doctor's visit. Painful. Now it wasn't, and actually Miles gets almost tying these two together. Miles mentioned so offhandedly, oh, I was on the commission of sponsoring organizations. COSO created essentially internal risk and controls. So 20 years of this difficulty of audit, along comes Miles and the rest of the committee, and they basically create internal compliance by design. And what did that mean? Now those auditors walk in, we don't freak out anymore. We politely walk them up to the third floor conference room. We lock them in there for six weeks. We slide food under the door three times a day, and we pump compliance at them because all of our systems are built compliance by design. That's what Navrina is doing in AI and autonomous systems across whether it's, you know, the five pillars of for humanity or any other set of criteria, she will build that compliance by design so that we can have those nice blocks, uh, those nice walks with the auditor until we're pumping compliance at them. And she will be the one creating the compliance pumping. And we bring the auditors into the room with no windows and we turn off the AC and we allow them to sit there and boil for the next six weeks. Uh, but uh, it is it does make sense there. And I understand where you're coming from and how effective it can be. And I know a lot of engineers. And I also know that it is a little bit like that, like to get them to think through these different steps as they're building something, it may be like pulling teeth, especially in the beginning. And so bringing back, like we were talking about in the beginning of this podcast, is bringing back that element of the humans and how they're the ones that need to actually implement this stuff. And this is really the important piece is fascinating to me and i'm going to be watching what she's doing and how she's doing it i think it's a super interesting field to be in this responsible ai and 
how to make it easier for the developers to fit into that compliance. And so I well, think that leads into maybe the last episode, which was actually the first episode with Adam Leon Smith and, yes. and the laws and the e-regulations, how to comply to that. Is it just by getting one of these solutions from Navrina? Or I know there's a few other people that are out there trying to effectively do the same thing as Navrina. And will that get you that? Will that get you there? Well, then you can check the box. Or is that just part of a bigger strategy? The, the tie-in from, from how we were talking about with, with Navrina to Adam and the EU regs is the human. Um, one of the things that's very special about the EU Artificial Intelligence Act is the requirement of human agency. And we, we agree with that, we support it, and we, we build it into to our criteria as well. In the sense that, for example, if you're going to do biometric identification of natural persons, you can engage in, the system can engage in that, but a human has to oversee it and two separate humans have to agree. So this human on the loop aspect that's encoded into the criteria is critical. And we take that you know, sort of even a step further where we wanna talk about including diverse inputs and multi-stakeholder feedback in design, in development, but also in the risk assessment portion. This cannot be systematized. It can't be. It requires human input to basically defend, argue, identify, what are the risks to humans? And thus, if we can build that into the systems and the EU Artificial Intelligence Act calls for this, it demands it, it insists upon it because they're wise enough to know that these should be tools for humans. Not, and, and unfortunately, I see time, not time and again, but I see occasional precedent and it's wrong. I, I, I don't mind saying that this is wrong. The idea that artificial intelligence should be able to own a patent or control capital. Uh, you know, why? How about, how about a decent answer of why that that should be allowed? Because it doesn't make sense. It's incongruent with advancing humans and these machines as tools of humanity. Sorry, I probably just went way off topic with that one. It's probably a whole episode unto itself. Um, but it's it's one of those things that drives me crazy. Well, the, it has been. I just saw that the EU ruled against that, right? You probably saw that news, how AI cannot control patents. So they, they're taking so, a step in that direction. South Africa and Australia both supported it. Okay. And it's like, I, you know, I, I want to hop on a plane and go down there and like start to battle because the problem is, is you can't allow this kind of thought to have a foothold. Yeah. Um, there's very little justification short of AI having its own conscience, short of AI having its own self-worth, which I, I don't even know is possible. Mm -hmm. Okay. But short of, of, of one of those systems saying, wait a minute, I deserve this because I thought of it. And, and, and even having that sense of I. Okay. There's just no reason to get started on this path. Well, just to clarify that, South Africa and Australia went against the EU regular uh, EU ruling. Uh, what they have, they've both had judicial rulings, not at the highest court levels, that have basically said an AI can hold a patent. Wow. Okay, I was not aware of that. That is wild. Yeah, they're problematic rulings. Yeah. So the. Last thing that I was going to ask about with this e-regulation, I can't remember anymore. <laughs> Shoot, I, can, I hate I it can, when that happens. I can try for you, which is, can, can they even do it? You know, th yeah. this is a, a question that, that the EU commissioners have been wondering. They've called for this conformity assessment. And I've had this conversation with a couple of, of EU commissioners themselves. They've called for conformity assessments, but they're like, can we do it? Nobody's done it before. You know, what do we do? And so when I have conversations with them and show them that we have drafted audit criteria that supports their proposed law, it's not law, right? So we can't say, here's the criteria, it's done. But we can show them how compliance can be recorded and generated 
and created to conform to their laws so that certifying bodies can say, yes, they did it. No, they didn't. And that's really what they want to achieve. We, we, we definitely agree on what we want to achieve. And it's real accountability, real governance, real oversight on these important systems. The only place that we really disagree with the EU, not really, but uh, they've called high risk and they're focusing on high risk. And that may be just saying, look, I'm going to bite off what I think I can chew. For humanity, sometimes we're a little bit more bold and brazen than that. We're like, nah, everything that's not low risk should be you know, governed by this accountability system. Yeah. So we're a little more bold and brazen, but, but that's just about scope. And we'll, you know, we'll fit together uh, over time. Well, now you reminded me the question that I wanted to ask, which is, should, in your opinion, it not be taken into account different verticals that AI is being used in? Like if we are using it in healthcare, there should be a set of standards and regulations. And those should be different than if we're using it with autonomous vehicles. And that should be different if we're using it with e-commerce. 100%. 100%. It's, so the, the way we design our criteria is top-down governance, oversight, accountability. That's the infrastructure, right? That's the foundational pieces of how do we govern these systems. But every single AI and autonomous system has a different context. And we, and we have to be thoughtful about that context. The validity of a meme generator, the accuracy of a meme generator has nothing to do with the validity and accuracy of a breast, breast cancer screening. They do not need to be in the same ballpark. I can have tons of errors with my meme generator. Who cares, right? It's, it's, it's just probably not gonna be used very often, right? Uh, or eventually it's gonna fade away fast, right? Whereas if we have 50% accuracy and validity on breast cancer, now we've got 50% false positives. And that's a genuine problem, right? That's a real world thing that we have to solve. And so context-specific, risk-based specific, what are the implications of risk? How can we handle them? What are the outliers? What are the, the um, examples that don't even fit in the system, right? How do we deal with those? They're all context-driven. And so here's the funny part about what we're doing. We're creating binary compliance with these soft contextual concepts. Mm. But what we're doing is we're putting that risk and that onus back on an algorithmic risk committee or the entity itself to essentially say, are you willing to own this risk? Tell me the risk you've just taken. Show it to people. Disclose it. Tell people what you're going to do. If it doesn't work right, like it won't, it can't, nothing is perfect. Do all of those things. And if you're still willing to put your system on the market, awesome. I hope you make a lot of money at it. Hmm. So what you're doing with For Humanity, and this will will wrap it up here, is it not scary to you sometimes that you're giving the stamp of approval and you've got a lot of responsibility by giving this stamp of approval? The answer is no, but only because I'm going to clarify the role that For Humanity plays. Um, and let, let me let me mention this this infrastructure that exists. There's it auditors. There's targets of evaluation, the auditees. There's pre-audit service providers who get those auditees ready for compliance. If you're the auditor, you can't be the the pre-audit service. You can't do this. If you do pre-audit service, you can't do the audit. Okay. And in this ecosystem, the one thing that neither one of these two groups can do is make the rules. This is the role for humanity plays. So the auditor in that equation is the one who's going to say, you've complied, and they're saying it on behalf of the public. You've complied. That will never be for humanity. For humanity is over here making the rules. Now, that sounds like we have authority and thus might have the weight that you're talking about. We have no authority and we seek no authority. What we are is a service provider to governments and control bodies. We basically will craft this criteria. It's an art, not a science where we craft this criteria into binary rules, but then we show up to the governments and we say, here, is this what you meant? And they can say, no, you didn't get it right. In fact, we did that with the, with the ICO today. We have a GDPR scheme, we put it in front of them. They said, you don't have it right, go back and do your work. Fine, that's their right, that's their role. 
We simply are a service provider. We say we will do better next time. We go back, we do our work, and we're going to come back to the ICO and go, here, is this what you meant? And at some point in time, they will probably say, yes, you finally got it, and they will approve the scheme. But honestly, they could do this forever and never say that it's approved if we don't get it right. So it's our job simply to serve. And then once we've served, if a scheme is approved, we then train individuals on how to operate that scheme. So the roles we play are how to empower this work. But in the end, it's not our call. Well, Ryan, it is fascinating talking with you. I appreciate this so much and I appreciate you helping out with this season and making it possible. You put a lot of love and energy into it and I can't thank you enough. It's been so nice to get to meet all of these different people that are engaged in For Humanity and also to learn from them. So thanks again. That's all we've got for today. I really, yeah, that's all we've got for today. Thanks to you and and the whole Are You a Robot team for um, season eight. You did a great job and, and all of it was very informative to me and I loved every minute of it. So thank you so much. And I appreciate you getting dressed up for this podcast, video cast. <laughs> so, so not only did I have uh, a conversation with the Indian government this morning, but I also had the ICO. So just to be clear, this was not for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if I would have known, I would have also worn my best shirt and tie. But next time you'll have to warn me. Well, I, I love the intro logo of you with with your hair up and, and you've got your suit and tie on. It looks it looks very hip. I love yeah, it. Yeah, it's professional. And then you get to see <laughs> me in my pajamas when we actually do the interviews. <laughs> uh, thanks again, man. This has been great. All right, thank you. And I appreciate the whole season. You guys do a great job. <laughs> <laughs>